Our speaker is Brother Jim Cowie. The first class, the line of the tribe of Judah hath prevailed. The reading for this class, Judges chapter 1. We now call upon Brother Jim to come forward. Thanks, Brother Mike. Well, brethren, sisters and young people, it's our very great pleasure to be with you once again. And uh, we bring with us the loving and fraternal greetings of the members of Wilston Ecclesia, and especially one of them. Uh, Margaret has asked me to convey her love to you all. She would have liked to have been here, but the trip is very short, and we have three teenage children still at home, so we can't uh, leave them behind for too long. So uh, we've come amongst you, brethren and sisters and young people, for the purpose of turning our minds once again to the Word of God, and we look forward to that very much over the course of the next few days, and especially for the work of proclamation which is before us. And uh, I find these occasions uh, exciting because there's the possibility, if it is our Father's will, that more may come to share the wonderful things that have been given to us in the time that is left, whatever length of time that might be. Now, just to put this study in perspective... Several months ago, when we were asked to come across and do the special series of lectures, the subject that I was given was Rome. And so when we did the, the compilation of the studies for the um, study day and the related studies uh, during the week, we focused particularly upon that subject, upon Rome, especially in the Old Testament. And you can be absolutely assured that Rome is there, large as life, in the Old Testament, or at least the system which, of course, we would generally refer to as the system of Rome, the system of Catholicism. But as time passed on, and it became very, very obvious that perhaps the, the lectures should be based upon the Jubilee of Israel's uh, uh, national history, the last 50 years, the studies have perhaps shifted ground a little bit. We've still retained the original idea of dealing with Rome, but we've now counterbalanced that with studies relating to Israel. So what you're going to find as we go through this series is that the first study is based on Judges chapter 1, the second study is based on the book of Zephaniah, and you might wonder what on earth the relationship between those two books is. Well, Hopefully we'll demonstrate that as we proceed, that there is a very strong relationship between those two books of the scripture because of the subject. And the subject will be Rome, in its uh, ancient history at least, and Rome in prophecy. And we're going to see how much prophecy there is in connection with the system of Rome and its relationship to Israel and their redemption. So don't... Uh, don't get the idea that we've sort of just plucked studies out of the air. Um, we've done this with a purpose. Now there's a second purpose in selecting the book of Judges to do this as a vehicle. I made the statement to Uncle Bart this afternoon that we could perhaps, for the time being, set aside the rest of the Bible. If we were to focus only on one book of the Bible, the book of Judges, it would be possible to demonstrate, if we had the time, and we don't have the time this, uh, this weekend, it would be possible to clearly demonstrate the entire mission of the Lord Jesus Christ, first advent and second advent, the redemption of Israel, the second exodus of Israel, the total destruction of the system of Rome, and the establishment of the kingdom of God, all from the book of Judges, in minute detail. Do you believe that? Well, there's a few heads nodding. Well, it's a, it's a fact. It's true. We could, I mean, you don't get this without having the rest of the scripture, but we could, for this weekend, just set the rest of the Bible away to the side and just using the book of Judges, we could do all that. It is absolutely amazing, brethren and sisters and young people, what our God has left in this book. Simply amazing. And we're just going to scratch the surface of that here today and tomorrow. Now, Judges chapter 1 is a curious way to begin this book. And I'm going to ask you a couple of questions which will get your minds ticking over. And in this session, we're going to just sort of warm you up. In the second session on Zephaniah, we're really going to make your brains work. 
And then when you're exhausted this evening, uh, we're going to have a picture show. But it won't just... <laughs> but it won't be a normal picture show. We'll be showing some, some uh, transparencies of the history of Israel, or at least the history of the Jewish people, for the last century or so, leading up to the establishment of the State of Israel in 1948. It's a fascinating story. It plays a very important part in the overall purpose of God, which our lectures will attempt to demonstrate over the next several nights. Now, Judges chapter 1 begins with a curious statement. If you or I had been writing this book, could I suggest to you we would not have started this way? We might have started with, the, with reference to the death of Joshua, but we wouldn't have gone on with the rest of chapter 1. If I was commencing the book of Judges, you know where I would have started it? I would have started it in chapter 2 and at verse 6. Because chapter 2 verse 6 is a repetition of some of the last words of Joshua 24. It says in verse 6, And when Joshua had let the people go, the children of Israel went every man unto his inheritance to possess the land. That's a very important passage as we shall see in a moment. But you see, that is actually a repetition of Joshua 24 and verse 28. So Joshua let the people depart, every man unto his inheritance. And it came to pass after these things that Joshua the son of Nun died and so on. And then in verse 31 it says, Israel served Yahweh all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders that outlived him and so on, which is exactly what chapter 2 of Judges does. It goes on to talk about the days of Joshua and then those of the elders who outlived him and then there was an apostasy in the ecclesia. So what's chapter 1 of Judges doing there? Well, it's there for a reason. And as is commonly the case, certainly the case in books like Genesis, the very first verse of the book is the most important one. The very first verse of the Bible sets forth the most important doctrine of the Bible. The doctrine of God manifestation. And the very first verse of Judges sets forth the most important principle of the book of Judges and indeed of life in the truth. And here is God dealing with his nation, the Ecclesia, and they've got a problem. And it says in Judges 1 and verse 1, that the children of Israel came unto Yahweh and they asked him this question. In fact, there are two parts to the question. And on both counts, they demonstrate they're in deep trouble because they do not understand how the truth ought to be working in their lives. And you would think, wouldn't you, after the work of Joshua, that this people would have come to some comprehension of what God required of them in their lives. They didn't understand. And they demonstrate, as we proceed in Judges chapter 1, that they've got the same problem as the ecclesia of God in the days of Christ when he came to them. And their problem was Judaism. They don't understand what God requires of a follower of Yahshua. Joshua or Jesus. What are their questions then in Judges 1 verse 1? They say, Who shall go up for us against the Canaanites first to fight against them? And there are two fundamental misconceptions there. Can you see them? Fundamental misconceptions. Let's take the last one first, which is their statement. Who shall go against the Canaanites first? Now there are declarations of course and the book of Joshua is absolutely full of it. Declarations that Yahweh had gone out before them. He'd made that promise in Exodus 23 when he said, I will send mine angel before thee and he shall go into the land. I will send hornets and drive out the inhabitants. And the haunt was simply a representation of Yahweh's presence. In the, in, in the personage of the angel of his presence, as he went into that land and he drove out the Canaanites out of their inheritance. Yahweh was there before them. He sent Joshua, who was to represent the Lord Jesus Christ. And the record of Joshua 21 makes the point. At the end of Joshua 21, it says this, Verse 43, Yahweh gave unto Israel all the land which he swore to give unto their fathers, and they possessed it and dwelt therein. And Yahweh gave them rest round about according to all that he sware unto their fathers. And there stood not a man of all their enemies before them. For Yahweh delivered all their enemies into their hand. There failed not aught of any good thing 
which Yahweh had spoken unto all the house of Israel, all came to pass. So to the answer to the question, to the question was, to the question that said, who shall go against the Canaanites first, was Yahweh has already done it in the, in the work of Joshua. And that's true of us, isn't it, brethren and sisters? How many people do you know who have collapsed in the truth because they say that they cannot fight the battle, that the flesh is too strong, it can't be defeated, that the Canaanite that stands between them and their eternal inheritance in the kingdom is just too strong, we can't deal with it. You know anybody like that? I know quite a few who are no longer in the truth today. They've given up the fight. And they have forgotten, brethren and sisters and young people, that the flesh has been defeated. That the Canaanite that stood between Christ, Yahshua, and his eternal inheritance has been defeated. And God has shown in him that it can be displaced. Not that he expects us to do it perfectly as did the Son of God. But he has demonstrated that we can have eternal life because he's won that through the work of his son. Everything he said he would do has come to pass in the work of that one and will, of course, be fulfilled. Not one thing has failed. And there's the guarantee of ultimate success for you and me. And there are times when all of us tire of the battle against the Canaanite within. Let us remember in those times that the Canaanite is dead in Christ. He's been defeated and displaced from his inheritance. And that inheritance can be secured if we understand that principle. But there's a second part of that question, isn't there, in Judges 1 verse 1. And this is perhaps a more critical element. Because the first thing they say is, Who shall go up for us? And that's a fundamental problem that they have. Now, you remember the reference that we made to, to Joshua 24 and verse 28, just cast your eye across the page again. It says the same thing as Judges chapter 2 verse 6. So Joshua let the people depart. Every man. And they're the words you should highlight in your Bible. Joshua let the people depart. Every man unto his inheritance. And Judges 2 verse 6 says the same thing. And when Joshua had let the people go, the children of Israel went every man unto his inheritance to possess the land. In other words, brethren and sisters and young people, this is a very simple thing, isn't it? Salvation is an individual matter. It is a personal matter of choice to displace the Canaanite from your inheritance. And the Canaanite that I'm dealing with is the same one you're dealing with. He looks different from the outside, but he's the same inside. It's the problem of our nature. A nature with its bias towards sin, which happily grovels in carnal things. It's like a pig in mud, isn't it? It grovels in carnal things. Its tendency is always that way. And do what I might, brethren and sisters, just like you, I can never put him out of, out of his place until the time comes when the nature that we bear is changed. But I've got to fight him because he stands in my territory, territory promised to me and to you, an inheritance in the kingdom of God. And while he stands between me and the kingdom, I've got to fight him. But I've got to make the choice to fight him. It's no good me saying, now listen, who's going to go up for me? Who's going to do the fight for me to displace the Canaanite that is in my inheritance? And every single Israelite who had been given an inheritance in that land, every single family had a place, had a problem. And the problem was that even though they defeated the Canaanites in organised opposition, and that was the work of Joshua, all the organised opposition was gone. Every Israelite had to go and personally himself do battle with the remaining Canaanites in that land who stood in the inheritance promised to them. And it's no different for you and me, brethren and sisters and young people. That is the issue of the truth that we all face. And you see, like I said, that's the first verse in the book of Judges. 
And this book is all about obtaining our inheritance through the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. And as we go through this book, wherever you go, you will find the work of Christ referred to. Now this chart endeavours to set forth the way in which the judges, and it doesn't include all of them, we've missed out Samson and others, just those that we get to focus on particularly in the course of our studies, it sets forth the work of Christ in its various aspects, particularly focusing on the atonement. The work of Othniel, as you will recall from the title of our study, The Lion of the Tribe of Judah, speaks of the work of Christ in redemption of his servants, leading ultimately to the taking of his bride and their possession together of their inheritance in a particular place. It leads us right up to Armageddon because we find Othniel actually going out against the very powers that are now assembling themselves to oppose Christ. When we come to Ehud, which will be the subject of our exhortation, we're going to see the work of the atonement dramatically portrayed in the work of that man. We'll consider Deborah and Barak on Sunday morning in the Sunday school session, and we're going to see how marvellously it sets forth the fulfilment of Genesis 3.15, leading up to the work of Armageddon and beyond. When you come to Gideon, you have the second most complete type of Christ in the scripture, second only to Joseph. And what you can demonstrate from the life of Gideon is just almost beyond belief. The expansiveness of that subject is absolutely awesome, brethren and sisters, awesome in its proportions. I mean that. Even now, after 20 years of looking at this particular subject, I still, when I look through Gideon, shake my head in amazement as to what God has put there. It's just almost unbelievable, but it's there. And we'll scratch that, we'll hope to scratch the surface of that in the course of the week, Monday and Tuesday, I think. Not really fair on the subject, but anyway, we'll attempt to do it. Then you come to the son of Gideon, Abimelech. And if you include Shamgar who comes here at the, at the end of Ehud's life, if you include Shamgar, here are the judges of Israel. Othniel, one, Ehud, two, Shamgar, three, Deborah, four, Gideon, five. Guess who's number six, the number of men? The one judge who was an imposter, not divinely appointed, who set himself up as a judge and in fact as a king in Israel, and who set about the work of creating the great apostasy of the ecclesia, which occurred. Hardly need to suggest to you that Abimelech is a type of the papacy. And you know what? Judges chapter 9 is one of the longest chapters in the Bible, and that's not by accident. It's a long chapter because in Judges chapter 9, I can demonstrate to you, in outline and sometimes in minute detail, the complete history of the development of the Roman Catholic apostasy and its destruction by Christ and the saints. You know that? And God has not given us a chapter, which when we come to it once a year in our readings, we thought, what on earth is this all about? And it goes on and on and on. And why why want this history for? It's not until you actually look at it that you, know, that you find that what God has put there in prophecy is the entire history of the Roman Catholic Church. And again, one stands in awe of the comprehensiveness of the divine mind in dealing with these things. The limitations are ours, brethren and sisters, not the word of God. And so when you go down, the story of the judges, Jephthah is there. If we had time, if I had a couple of hours to deal with Jephthah, again, none of us in this hall would be debating whether or not Jephthah killed his daughter. There would not be one debate about that, brethren and sisters, because you see, that's why we lose the point of the scriptures sometimes. We debate issues like that when God never intended it to be debated. He intended us to see something higher and better. And the story of Jephthah is mind-boggling in its proportions in terms of the redemption of Israel. It's just a pity that we don't have time to deal with it. So let's come back to Judges 1. Let's sweep on as quickly as we can. 
The exasperation of our God is revealed in verse 2. And he says, Israel, what am I going to do with you? But you could ask questions like that in verse 1. Well, I guess I've just got to focus on the one tribe in Israel where there are people, not many of them, but there are people who understand what the truth's all about. So he selects Judah. And in the tribe of Judah, there was a faithful family who happened to have Gentile origins. It was the family of Caleb. And so God says, Judah shall go up. And they did, and they took Simeon, their brother, with them, and they went up in verse 3. But don't get the idea that all of Judah understood the principles of the truth, brothers and sisters, because they didn't. And when you come to verse 4, you realise that. Because it says that they went up and they, they destroyed the Canaanites and the Perizzites, and they slew of them in Bezek 10,000 men. But they made an awful mistake. Because they found there the king of the Canaanites called Adonai Bezek in verse 5. And Adonai Bezek means the Lord of Lightning. Now lightning is normally used in scripture of divine judgment. It is a divine light, it's electricity, concentrated and, and God has created that and he uses it in the scripture as a symbol of judgment but it's not here to represent judgment. The lightning here, brethren and sisters, in this man, Adonai Bezek, is a reference to something which among men is the most rapid and electrifyingly capable of producing evil. Because this man is the king of the Canaanites. He therefore is a type of King Sin. And the home of King Sin, his bastion, where he does best, is inside the cranium of the human body. And the mind of man left to itself without the influence of the word of God is the stronghold of King Sin. That's where he is brilliant. And you know what? I don't know of anything more rapid in its activity in the realm of creation than lightning. It is awesome, isn't it, when you see the sky lit up with lightning and the speed of it is just unbelievable. And you know what? I don't know anything more rapid in its ability to turn to evil and carnality than the human mind. Mine operates like lightning. How about yours? My mind is slow when it comes to the things of the spirit. I can sit down and open my Bible and I may as well be reading a comic magazine. Because very often my mind is simply not prepared to pick up those ideas that are there. It takes labour and effort. Because my mind doesn't naturally sit in the heavens and nor does yours. But I tell you what, there is absolutely no effort required at all for my mind to run off to evil. It does it like that. It's like lightning. Now if you don't think that that's what this record is about, just hang on a bit. Because you see, it goes on to say this in verse 6. Adonai Bezek fled, and they pursued after him, and they caught him, and they cut off his thumbs and his great toes. Thumbs and great toes. What would you want to do that for? Well, it was, it was requiting him. In verse 7 he says, Adonai Bezek said, Three score and ten kings, having their thumbs and their great toes cut off, gathered their meat under my table. This is what he used to do to those he captured. He took a king in, uh, in warfare and, and uh, killed off all his people. He took the king and said... I'll have you under my table like an animal and I'll cut off your thumbs and your big toes and you won't be able to walk and you won't be able to work. You see, that's exactly why the scripture chooses the thumb and the big toe to represent a man's works, hand, and a man's walk, feet. Like the time when the priesthood was inaugurated and in Leviticus chapter 8, certain sacrifices were made and the blood was placed upon the right ear and the right thumb, and the right big toe of Aaron and his sons. Why would God do that? Well, what he was saying is that the first thing that he wants is our ears. He wants us to hear and to use our cranium in spiritual things. He wants our minds, brethren, sisters and young people. And when he's got our mind, he can affect what we do. Now, you try and do any work without your thumb. Take it right off and see how you get on. Just use your four fingers. 
It's pretty difficult. The thumb is an important member of the hand. It is the, what you might call the foundation of the hand. And so when you cut off the thumb, you stop a man from effectively working. You take off a big toe and you will not be able to stand up. You certainly won't be able to walk properly because the big toe is critical to balance. And so God was saying to the priests and to all of Israel, when the, when the ear and the thumb and the big toe of the priests were anointed, that's what I want of you, Israel. I want your minds, first and foremost. And if I've got your mind, then the works of the flesh can be, a, can be cut off. And you'll start doing different works. And your walk will be changed. And you'll start walking with balance and with purpose in my service. I know that, Israel, but I've first got to have your mind. Israel's problem, Judah's problem, was this, brethren and sisters, that when they took Adonai Bezek, they cut off his thumbs and his big toes. But they didn't do with him what God required of them. You know what God said about the Canaanites? As to what they were to do to them? Well, he said this in Deuteronomy chapter 20 and verses 15 and 16. We won't turn it up because of time, but it says this, that when you come into the land and you fight against the Canaanites, you will kill every man, woman and child. There will not be one left, Israel. Kill them all off. Why? Why would God ask such a thing? Because of the principle involved. And the principle was this, brethren and sisters, that if you left the Canaanites alive unconverted to the truth they would corrupt that nation and destroy it in the end in the same way that when people come into the truth if they are unconverted and the word of God has not got hold of their minds you can be absolutely assured that they will corrupt their own lives and maybe the lives of others as well God wants our minds brethren and sisters and young people that's where he starts and when he's got hold of that he can do something with your works and with your walk. Here we have an example, the first case that I know of, of national Judaism, which was Israel's preeminent problem throughout their entire history. They were a people who could, at least on the externals, on the outside, present themselves as God's people. They had a fabric of law and control over their lives. When Christ came, what did he find? He found an entire fabric where people stood on street corners and offered prayer. Where they went to the house of God and made sacrifices. Where they stood and worshipped God. And to all intents and purposes, they were serving him. When he knew, and they knew, that privately they practised the most hideous of evils. Because their minds were corrupt. Oh yes, they walked within a certain boundary of law. It looked good, but it was corrupt underneath. And the problem was up here, upstairs in the brain. The word of God did not have control. The flesh had not been cut off. And you see, what Israel did here, they were to do later on. They cut off thumbs and big toes, but they didn't cut off carnal thinking. That was their problem. And what happened? Well, you see, when Adonai Bezek said that, they, that I have been requited by God in verse 7, he was quite wrong, as the flesh nearly always is. He says, As I have done, so God hath requited me. God had commanded Israel to put to death every Canaanite, including him. Now, he wasn't being requited by God. He was being led off by Israel. And they brought him, this is a very interesting statement at the end of verse 7, they brought him to Jerusalem, the vision of peace, and there he died. That's all it says. Now the record of verse 8 says that the children of Judah had captured Jerusalem from the Jebusites. They'd taken it with the edge of the sword and they set the city on fire. And they gave it to the tribe of Benjamin because it was on the border of Benjamin. And verse 20 of this chapter tells us this. Sorry, verse 21. And the, the children of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites that inhabited Jerusalem, but the Jebusites dwell with the children of Benjamin in Jerusalem unto this day. And in fact, the, the Jebusites were there from that day until the days of David. 
500 years later, David came along and finally took Jebus from the hands of the Jebusites and turned it into his capital. That's a remarkable story. That the one city that sat right in the middle of Israel was never captured from the hands of the Canaanites except for one brief period of time when Judah took it, gave it to Benjamin, and then it was lost. Why was it lost? Well, I'll give you what I think happened. This is my opinion of what happened. That when they left Adonai Bezek, the Lord of Lightning, alive, oh yes, he couldn't work, and he couldn't move around. He was a cripple. That cut off big toes and and thumbs, but not his mind. His mind remained active, brethren and sisters, and they put him in Jerusalem, the vision of peace, and he white-anted it away. And finally, Jerusalem fell back under the control of Canaanites, which is exactly what happens in the lives of people who have been given the vision of peace, but who think that the truth means you've got to sort of put on a good show and appear as though you're doing right, but they do absolutely nothing about turning their minds to the word of God. Now, that doesn't include most of us. But, of course, we're all dealing with the same problem. And the problem is, brethren and sisters, that there is standing in our inheritance a Canaanite. Unless we learn to deal with him through this book, he will take away from us the vision of peace, just as it was taken away from the children of Israel. Well, you might say, well, hang on, I thought this subject was about the line of the tribe of Judah. Well, we're getting there, slowly but surely. And there is just one more thing we need to say about what we've already said as we lead towards the work of Othniel. And it's in verses 9 to 11, or 9 and 10 to be specific. It says this, in Judges 1 verse 9, that afterward the children of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites that dwelt in the mountain and in the south and in the valley. Now they were around the area of Hebron. That's the mountain referred to. It's the highest point in the land apart from, of course, the Mount Mount Hermon in the north. And it says in verse 10 that Judah went against the Canaanites that dwelt in Hebron. And then it says in parenthesis, now the name of Hebron before was Kerjath Arba, and they slew Sheshai and Ahaman and Talmai. Now Kerjath Arba means the city of the four, and and the four referred to is the original giant, and his three sons. So the original giant, and he had three progeny. Could I suggest to you, brethren and sisters, that in the context of what we've been saying, that the original giant represents, Anak was his name, represents King Sin, and his three progeny represent the three problems of the Canaanite nature that we bear, and You need to remember passages like Philippians 3.21 in this context. Just scribble that down in your margin somewhere. Philippians 3.21 says this. It says that Christ will change the bodies of our humiliation that they might be made like unto his glorious body. Now there's our problem. Our problem is we have a body of humiliation. My body humiliates me almost every day in some way. And so does yours. It's a body of humiliation. It's a Canaanite body. You know what Canaan means? Canaan means literally to bow down in humiliation. And standing in the inheritance of Israel were humiliators. And we've all got that problem, brethren and sisters. We've all got the problem of the humiliator. He is standing in my inheritance. He's a great giant, actually. And he's got three sons who obey their father and they never turn away from their father. Well, I've never known them to do anything other than work consistently with their father. And they never give up. They are persistent. They're three giants in my life, brethren and sisters, and I would be surprised if they're not in yours. They're the giants of the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. Now look at their names at the end of verse 10. Sheshai means whitish, clothed in white. But in the context of these men, the whiteness is not the whiteness of righteousness, brethren and sisters. It's the white of leprosy. 
leprosy, the disease of the flesh. Philippians 3.21 says this. It says that Christ will change the bodies of our humiliation that they might be made like unto his glorious body. Now there's our problem. Our problem is we have a body of humiliation. My body humiliates me almost every day in some way. And so does yours. It's a body of humiliation. It's a Canaanite body. You know what Canaan means? Canaan means literally to bow down in humiliation. And standing in the inheritance of Israel were humiliators. And we've all got that problem, brethren and sisters. We've all got the problem of the humiliator. He is standing in my inheritance. He's a great giant, actually. And he's got three sons who obey their father and they never turn away from their father. I've never known them to do anything other than work consistently with their father. And they never give up. They are persistent. There are three giants in my life, brethren and sisters, and I would be surprised if they're not in yours. They're the giants of the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Now look at their names at the end of verse 10. Sheshai means whitish, clothed in white. But in the context of these men, the whiteness is not the whiteness of righteousness, brethren and sisters. It's the white of leprosy. Leprosy, the disease of the flesh. The lust of the flesh. What about the next one? Ahiman. His name means brother of a gift. And the eyes, brethren and sisters, are a problem, aren't they? They're always looking for a gift of some kind. They always want a portion or a gift. They look around and say, oh, I'd love that, or I would love to do that, or I would love this. That's our problem, isn't it? The lust of the eyes. Always wanting to be given something. What about the next one? Talmai. His name means ridged or accumulated, to bank something up, to puff it up, to build it up. That's the pride of life. There's never a day goes past in my life when I don't recognise in me, brethren and sisters, the work of the pride of life. The flesh never gives up. It always wants to be praised, to be noticed, to be recognised. There's our three problems. And they're three giants. But they weren't a problem to one man, yea, two men, and one woman in Israel. That man's name was Caleb. And he took Hebron and took it as his inheritance in that land. And it was the only place he wanted because the three giants were there and they stood between him and immortality and he was not going to allow them to remain in that place. That's the spirit we have to have, brethren and sisters and young people. And now we come to the story of Othniel. In Judges 1 verse 11 we read that having dealt with Hebron they came to a place that was named Kerjath Sefer. And here there was a bastion of Canaanites. So verse 11 says, From thence he went against the inhabitants of Deber. And the name of Deber before was Kerjath Sefer. Now just get this right in your mind. When Caleb came to Deber, it wasn't known by that name. It was known by the name Kerjath Sefer. And they changed the name of that place from Kerjath Sefer to Deber. Now why would they do that? Well, there was a purpose in that, as we shall see. Kerjath Sefer means city of a book. You got that? City of a book. Now if I was to ask you what book, the obvious answer would be the book. The scriptures. If I was to ask you what the city of the book is, what would you say? Well, you would say, Jerusalem, surely. It's the city of the book, isn't it? So this place is there to represent Jerusalem. And it's going to become the inheritance of the first judge of Israel who distinguishes himself in the process by taking a bride 
who was, the mem- who was a member of his own family. And just let this sort of information just filter in for the time being and we'll add the, the detail a little bit later on. But this is what's happening here. So this place, Kirjath Sefer, the city of the book, is renamed as a result of its conquest. And it's renamed Deber. Now Deber means the shrine or the innermost part of the sanctuary. Now if I was to ask you the question... What will the city of the book become in the day when it is delivered from the hand of the oppressor, from the Canaanite, who you will recall in Zechariah 14 verse 21 will no longer be in the house of Yahweh. In that day there shall no longer be the Canaanite in the house of Yahweh. If I was to ask you what Jerusalem will become after the events of Armageddon, when it is released from Gentile control, as it will again be in Gentile control, What would you say? Well, you would say that it's going to become the seat of the divine presence in the earth and divine government in the earth. There the house of prayer for all nations will be built. In the middle of the house of prayer, there's a special section called the Most Holy, which runs from the inner wall of the inner circular temple. And inside that area, only immortals go. It becomes the shrine of our God, the sanctuary of our God. In fact, it becomes Mount Zion, to be specific, the innermost part of the sanctuary, like the most holy was in the tabernacle and the temple. Isn't that going to to be its destiny? Well, of course it is. We all know that. So Deber represents that time of Jerusalem's history. So when the city is taken by Othniel, it's renamed. It's no longer the city of the book, a vision of peace, brethren and sisters. It's now the reality of the very presence of divinity upon the earth. So you see, this is, this is typology. And I think we all appreciate that. And you need to think as to what God was really trying to say in this history. Is it just a historical record? And if it was, why would you and I want to know about it? It's not just a historical record. It's prophecy. But what happens? Verse 12. Caleb said... He that smiteth Kirjath Sefer, see that's the name of it when they come to it, he that smites the city of the book and taketh it, to him will I give Aksar my daughter to wife. And that was the prize. The hand of Caleb's daughter as a wife. And the record says that Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, in fact he was a nephew, took it and he gave him Aksar his daughter to wife. Well, sounds very simple, doesn't it? Well, who is she and what kind of woman was she? Well, her name means an anklet. And now an anklet in those days was a fetter that they used to put on the ankles of prisoners and they would lead them away into captivity. In other words, they made slaves of people and they put this anklet on there and chained them up together and led them away to captivity and slavery. Now, she had been named an anklet, which made her, of course, in a sense, as it were, in the typology, a bond slave. She was tied to another, bound to another. Just as the bride of Christ, brethren and sisters and young people, is bound to their Lord. And she was bound, not just because her name means Axar, but because... She was bound by faith. She's an incredible woman, this one. And being brought up in the house of Caleb, it's no wonder, because he was an incredible man in Israel. Unbelievable faith and persistence. But he had it, and he passed it on to his daughter. And she had it. We're going to see that in a moment. Okay, you got the the trend of this? Is it obvious where we're heading? Not too many heads shaking, but anyway, I think we'll just carry on. We've got, a, we've got a woman who's a bond slave who belongs to a family. Let's just add this detail. We've said it already. Belongs to a family that has Gentile origins. Caleb was a Kenizzite. And the Kenizzites were one of the tribes that inhabited the land of Canaan when Abraham was there. 
God said to him in Genesis 15, the Kenites and the Kenizzites have got to go, amongst others, that you might inherit this land. So that was a gent- they were Gentiles. And it seems as though somewhere along the path, Caleb's family had attached themselves to Israel and he'd become, eventually, a prominent man. Now, he might have been brought up in, in the nation of Israel, but his origins were as a, a Gentile, just like most of us here, if not all of us here. Our origins were as Gentiles, but we have come into the family of Israel. Now, he was a daughter of that family. She was part Jew, part Gentile, and she becomes the bride of a man who is unquestionably a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. Is that too much? Is that too good to be true? It is true, because it's exactly what God's doing now in calling out of the nations a people for his name on the basis of their faith. Well, what about this Othniel, the first judge of Israel? You know what his name means? You look it up in Strong's Concordance, it will tell you that his name means the force of Ale. You look it up in Jesenius, and Jesenius will tell you that his name means the Lion of Ale. Now they're not different, because the term force has its origins in the word for lion. But the fact is, brethren and sisters, that Othniel's name means the Lion of God, and he happens to be from the tribe of Judah. Is that coincidence? The lion of the tribe of Judah. Now you all know Revelation 5 verse 5 which makes that statement that the lion of the tribe of Judah hath prevailed and he's about to prevail. He's going to prevail by taking the city of the book and turning its name into the innermost sanctuary of God. And to celebrate that, he's going to take a bride who belongs to his own family, who is part Jewish and part Gentile by origin. Isn't that amazing? It's exactly what happens. And the record says in verse 14, and it came to pass when she came to him, to become his wife. And what would you do if you were a young woman in this situation? What would you do? Well, most young women, and we don't blame them for this because we were all the same. And you don't blame others for the same problem that you had. Comes to wedding time, what's your preeminent thought on the day of your wedding? Well, it could be many things, I guess, but I guess most of us could answer that quite uh, easily ourselves. It's not usually spiritual things, is it, that dominates your mind on the day of your wedding. Oh, we talk, we say the right things. We get up and we say that this is a type of the marriage of Christ and his bride. But let's be frank with ourselves. Is there anyone that can say on their wedding day that their most preeminent thoughts were on spiritual things, the deep things of God? There'd be very few of us. The best I can say is that on my honeymoon I studied the book of Titus. That was my second honeymoon, about two or three weeks after we got married. That's the very best that I can say. But on the day of my wedding, I would have to confess that maybe my mind wasn't quite there. But look at this woman. She's coming to marry this man. And it came to pass in verse 14, when she came to him, that she moved him that is her new husband, she moved him to ask of her father, not a field, it is the definite article in the Hebrew, to ask the field. She had her eyes on one field in this place. You can have the rest. You can have the city. I only want one piece of ground. That one over there. Why? What was in that field that made it important? Well, we read on. She got down off the donkey because it appears as though Othniel was either too busy, too preoccupied or whatever else or not fast enough to represent his new wife in this request from Caleb. So she makes it herself. 
And Caleb said to her, what do you want? You're getting married today. What do you want? She says, Dad, I want that field. Okay? You've got that field because I know why you want it. Why did she want it? Verse 15. She said unto him, give me a blessing. For thou hast given me a Southland. Now in the Hebrew, it's, that's the word Negev. Southland. That is, it's a dry place. This is south of Hebron. Getting down towards the Negev. So this Southland is a place where there's not much water. And she's about to find her inheritance in this place. And she's thought about this, brethren, sisters and young people. She has thought about how to secure her inheritance in a dry and barren land, which is where you and I are now. She's thought about how you do it. How do you do it? You need water. You need a constant stream of water. You need water that comes up from under the ground where man doesn't know how it's produced, but he knows it sustains him in life. You need the word of God. You need the things that flow freely from the mind of God, brethren and sisters. You need access to that all the time. And she understood that principle. She said to her father, that's the field I want. And he gave it to her. And in that field, says verse 15, as she said, give me springs of water. And Caleb said, I'll give you the upper springs and the lower springs. You can have the lot. The upper springs and the lower springs. You'll never run out of water. Because that is what you want. And you know what, brethren and sisters? That's exactly the spirit of the bride of Christ. If that is our prayer to our God, if our whole heart's desire is set upon obtaining and keeping an inheritance before him, and we ask him to give us the strength and the power to achieve that, he will never let us down. He will give us the upper springs and the lower springs. They will never run out. And the day will come when we shall be presented to Christ as his bride because of the effect of the word of God upon our lives. Isn't that a wonderful story? But it doesn't end there. You come to chapter 3. And verse 8. Israel is an apostasy. They have turned away and married their children to the Canaanites and vice versa. And Yahweh is angry with them. And in verse 8 it says, Therefore the anger of Yahweh was hot against Israel and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, and the children of Israel served Cushan Rishathaim eight years. Now, who is this Cushan Rishathaim? Well, we recognise the name Cush there, don't we? Now, we'll talk a lot more about Cush in our second study, God willing. But just to lead us into that, Cush, who is mentioned in Genesis chapter 10 for the first time in the family of Ham, through whom came men like Canaan, Cush was the father of Nimrod. Now, a lot more about Nimrod later on. But Nimrod, just to be clear, was the first pope. Is that clear? Nimrod was the first pope. And he was a black man. The last pope will probably be a black man. That's by the way. Cush was his father. And Cush is attributed with being the great original prophet of the Babylonian mysteries which formed the foundation platforms of the Catholic Church. Now we could demonstrate that if we had time. So Cush, when you read the name Cush, don't just dismiss it as being sort of a peripheral detail. When you read Cush, read Catholicism. Okay? Now, I hope that one of the things we can do in our studies over the course of this weekend is just give some keys to biblical interpretation, which is the purpose of Bible study. I mean, it's pointless me standing up here and wasting 
breath unless we take something away. Now, I know full well that I'll hardly have got on the plane and most of you won't remember what I said. I know that's a fact because I go to a Bible school and listen to others and drive away and I think, now, what did he say? It's only those things that I've locked away in my margin, which is a very useful memory box, written them down in my margin in some kind of note form or tucked them away in the back of my head as a pillar of interpretation of the Bible that are helpful to me later on. I can't remember, and we don't expect anybody to remember, everything that's said. But if we learn something about the way to interpret the Scriptures, well, then we do it ourselves. It's a question of self-help thereafter. Now, here is a principle. We've seen a few already, but there's a few more to go. But here is one that you can lock away from this study. When you read Cush, you think... Catholicism. Okay? Now we'll demonstrate that that's true later on. But it's a very important principle of interpretation. Now this man's name, Cushan Rishathaim, means Cush of double wickedness. If I had to ask you, thinking in terms of the Cush of today, the Catholic system, thinking of their invasion under the banner of the, of the Russians, with whom they will be in cahoots, of the land of Israel to secure the holy places, if I ask you what forms of wickedness, in general terms, do you think Cush or Babylon of today would represent in league with the Russians, what would you say? Well, I think I would say that there are two heads, as it were, or two parts to the head of Babylon. There's a military power, which is the Russian power, in the invasion of the land. And there's a religious power, which, which is Babylon the Great, Catholicism. Okay, so it's got two parts to it. They use the military power to secure their religious objectives. So it's a cush of double wickedness. And they have Israel in thraldom. And for eight years they grind out the children of Israel because of their apostasy until Yahweh provides a deliverer. And guess who he is? Othniel. Verse 9. And when the children of Israel cried unto Yahweh, he raised them up a deliverer. Now in the Hebrew the word is yasha, means a saviour. Yahweh provides a saviour. You could call him a Yahshua, Yahweh's salvation. Or if you wish to use the Greek, Jesus. He raises up Jesus, who is Israel's first judge, who has already taken for himself a bride. And he goes forth to destroy the power that is oppressing God's people a cush of double wickedness. And it says at verse 9 that Othniel delivered them. He was the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. And this is how he delivered them. Verse 10. The spirit of Yahweh came upon him and he judged Israel. So he becomes Israel's judge and leader. And when it says the spirit of Yahweh came upon him, the word came upon in the Hebrew is Hayah. It means to exist, hence to become. The word is always emphatic in the Hebrew. It has the idea of possessing a man. You see the margin of my Bible says, he was the spirit. Okay? He became a spirit man. And he went forth to deliver. And Cushan Rishathaim the king of Mesopotamia was delivered into his hand. Now, brethren and sisters, if you need any further proof that Cush represents Babylon, just think about where he was from. Where is Mesopotamia? The word means the highland between the two rivers. That's what Mesopotamia means. The highland between the two rivers. What rivers do you think might be referred to? Euphrates and Tigris. Which means that if we were reading this as prophecy, we would read it this way. 
that Othniel, the lion of the tribe of Judah, who was a spirit man, went out against the Cush of double wickedness, the Catholic system with its military power in Russia and its religious power in Rome. He was Yahweh's salvation to Israel and he delivered him and he destroyed Cushan Rishathaim, the king of Babylon. Now someone tell me that the word of God in a historical book like Judges doesn't have in it prophecy. Prophecy. 